you were attuned to the quick surge up in a place, yeah. but the long, slow decline, we're not as attuned to because it, it happens slower and over a longer period of time. We notice the, you know, the volcanoes, but we don't detect the soil erosion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, that's uh, a great and, and there aren't very many volcanoes, but, you know, soil erosion is happening on a massive scale. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have Joe Cartwright on the phone. He has helped author a report called Lost in Place, Why the Persistence and Spread of Concentrated Poverty, Not Gentrification, is Our Biggest Urban Challenge. You can find a copy of the report at cityobservatory.org. Joe, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here, Chuck. I really enjoyed this report. It came out in, in December. You sent me a copy then, and I feel bad we haven't had a chance to chat yet. I'm glad you're taking the time today. I, I want to start out by trying to get a sense from you what you see as gentrification. What what does the term mean to you? And and maybe more importantly, what does it maybe not mean to you? Or how is it being perhaps misapplied? It's one of the most glibly used and poorly defined terms out there. I mean, people use it in all kinds of situations. And what we've tried to do in the Lost in Place report is to provide a, a clear and we hope rigorous definition of what we call neighborhood change to try and understand what's going on. I think when most people say gentrification, what they're really thinking of is a neighborhood changes so radically that the people who used to live in that neighborhood are completely pushed out or displaced. And I think the reason people are worried about gentrification is because of their perception that it's a big factor in making the lives of the poor worse. And so what we set out to do is really provide some context to that by looking at high poverty neighborhoods in the United States and how they've changed over the last four decades to get a sense of what's going on and and how big a factor gentrification and displacement actually are. I want to focus on that term displacement because I feel like that is the maybe crux of the conversation. When I read some of the other people writing about gentrification or hear people talking about it, it really comes down to that term displacement. You guys try to measure, in a sense, displacement, or at least the aggregate amount of displacement. Why is displacement an important thing to focus on? And why is that one of the indicators that you guys used in your methodology? I think a lot of times people have a very simple notion of of how change occurs in neighborhoods. And that if one, you know, better educated, lighter skinned, a higher income person moves into a neighborhood, that must mean that one uh, lower income, darker skinned, less educated person has to move out. But what we found is that uh, the process of neighborhood change is much more more nuanced than that. And that that neighborhoods are, first of all, changing all the time. But then just because you're gaining one one type of population doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing another type of population. Again, what we try to do is look at this, not just at one or two neighborhoods, but look at, across all the high poverty neighborhoods in the U.S. You began with that term, the high poverty neighborhoods, concentrated poverty. 
Why start there? What is the significance of a high poverty neighborhood? How do you defining that for this study? First of all, you know, I, I think the reason people care about gentrification again is because they think that it's, you know, a major contributor to the problem of poverty in the U.S. So, and I think people are very right to be concerned about poverty. Poverty has grown in the U.S. And the thing that we know about poverty is that as bad as it is for you to be poor, it's far worse if you live in a neighborhood where a large fraction of your neighbors are also poor. You have poor education systems. You have less safe streets. You have fewer public services because there's less financial resources to pay for them. You're more at risk of crime and mental illness and so on. So we know that concentrated poverty makes all the aspects of poverty worse. And the definition that we used in our work was a poverty rate of 30% or higher in the neighborhood or in the census tract. And that's roughly double the poverty rate for the nation as a whole. And what we did is we went back to 1970 and identified every urban high poverty census tract in large metropolitan areas in the United States. And we counted all of those and there were about 1,100 of them in 1970. And we looked to see what happened to those 1,100 high-poverty neighborhoods over the next four decades. Let's talk a little bit about that in specific. You know, I know some of our audience is not maybe well-versed in the technicalities of census tracts and stuff. What's a census tract? And well, why, census why tract, start there? It's the crude and convenient way we have of defining neighborhoods from a statistical perspective. A census tract averages about 4,000 people. I mean, it's, it's the unit that the census defines to, to gather geographic data. So it gives us a pretty good, rough way of gathering data neighborhood by neighborhood. So when we look back to 1970, we see that there's roughly 1,100 of these neighborhoods where there's a concentration of poverty. The poverty rate is double that of what a, a normal census tract would be. What happened to those places over the next 40 years? Well, overwhelmingly, they stayed high poverty places. Three quarters of them still uh, had poverty rates of 30% or higher 40 years later. And only about a 100 of those 1,100 census tracts that held about 5% of the population of those high-poverty tracts in 1970 saw their poverty rate decline to below the national average. So that is, they went from being above 30% in 1970 to below 15% in 2010. So the odds, if you were living in a high-poverty neighborhood in 1970, that your tract would have gotten better enough, would have gentrified enough to the poverty rate be lower than the national average was about one in 20. Other, two other things that are really important. One is those high poverty tracks that didn't improve, they got worse. They lost population. On average, the tracks that were still high poverty, this is three quarters of them, 40 years later, had lost 40% of their 1970 population. So the notion that if a neighborhood doesn't get better, that it sort of stays the same isn't right. These neighborhoods aren't stable. If they don't improve, they tend to wither and lose population. And then the other thing is we created a lot more new high poverty neighborhoods over this four decade period. So we went from about 1,100 neighborhoods with poverty rates over 30% to about 3,300 neighborhoods with poverty over 30%. And the total number of people living in those high poverty neighborhoods tripled over that 40 year period. So there are a lot more places of concentrated poverty. And in fact, if you're poor and live in an urban area in the United States, the chances 
that you live in a high poverty neighborhood are now much higher. It used to be a little under 30% of the poor population lived in high poverty neighborhoods. And now it's the case that about 40% of the poverty population lives in high poverty neighborhoods. So this problem is getting bigger and it's getting worse. So if we go back to 1970, We had a lot of poor people in this country, but they weren't as concentrated as they are today. Specifically in urban areas. Okay. Okay. And so we're seeing not only a higher number of these census tracts that have high concentrations of poverty, but those places are largely continuing to lose population and that's stressing them even more. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is the places that were were very high poverty in 1970, those 1,100 that we started with, have essentially bled population if they didn't rebound. And that's the other thing is the the 100 or so census tracts that did see their poverty rate decline actually gained population. They gained on the in the aggregate about 30% population. So it was either you know down and out that is you stayed high poverty and lost population or in and up that you gained people and your neighborhood improved but overwhelmingly it was more likely that that you would see continued poverty and a loss of population okay let's focus for a sec on those up and out ones when we hear about gentrification it's often coming from those kind of places right You cited some of the kind of higher profile examples in the report, Harlem, Chelsea, Williamsburg, these places that kind of epitomize when we think of gentrification. Those are rare, rare exceptions, are they not? Yeah, I mean, I I think they are. It's hard to find examples in other cities that are as striking as those changes. And, you know, I I think it's not coincidental that, you know, the neighborhoods we know about are in in large cities and major media markets. It turns out that something like 40% of all of the, all of the rebounding neighborhoods that we identified were in just a handful of metropolitan areas, New York, Washington, Chicago, San Francisco, where it happens. It's extremely visible and very striking. But what we really don't see is the fact that there are a lot of neighborhoods that were once middle-class neighborhoods that have, over the last 40 years, become high-poverty neighborhoods. We identified a group we called Fallen Stars. These were places that had poverty rates below the national average in 1970 and had poverty rates of 30% or more in 2010. And there are about 10 times as many of those as there are neighborhoods that rebounded. One of the things that was amazing to me that when I read it, this just struck out at me as being, wow, this is counterintuitive. Part of the up and out, the places that you labeled as rebounding, you weren't necessarily seeing a displacement of people in the sense that they were losing population. They were actually gaining in population. One of the quotes that you had in the report went along the lines of there's an assumption that when a non-poor person moves into a neighborhood, that that means that a poor person must move out. But you actually saw that they had more and more and more people to the places that were actually becoming more successful. Is that actually the case? This is really difficult to measure, but we know that the poverty rate, the number of people in in poverty is going down 
I should say, the number of poor people living in these neighborhoods goes down whether they gentrify or not, whether they improve or not. I think they're leaving for different reasons. You know, I think sometimes the housing prices go up. There are clearly neighborhoods that, that gentrify, but then people are leaving the neighborhoods that don't get better as well. And I think here there's been some really excellent research that's been done by Lance Freeman, by Jake Vigder, uh, and others that constructs these sort of longitudinal measures of, of whether people move in or out of particular neighborhoods and finds that, you know, when the neighborhood improves, it does a better job of hanging on to the existing residents and that there isn't really an appreciable difference in the aggregate in out-migration rates in those neighborhoods that improve. If I'm a person living in one of these census tracts that has concentrated poverty, what's going to help me? I'm hearing you say that if I'm living in one of those, it's more likely that my neighbors are moving out, people are leaving, there's disinvestment, and I'm continuing to decline. What's the answer in a situation like that? I mean, statistically, what are we trying to get to? Are we trying to get to a place where people are now moving back in? Well, you know, one of the things that we know, and there's some very good research that's been published in the last couple of years, Raj Chetty and his colleagues at the Equality of Opportunity Project, Patrick Sharkey has a great book, Stuck in Place, that essentially looks at the life prospects of poor kids and the kinds of neighborhoods that they're growing up in. And what these studies consistently find is poor kids growing up in mixed-income neighborhoods where there are high-income and low-income and middle-income people do much better, have much better life prospects, have higher incomes, better education, and so on, than otherwise identical poor kids growing up in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. So if we really want to tackle the poverty problem in the United States, one of the things that we have to do is is reduce the amount of concentrated poverty that we have. And statistically, there are really only two ways to do that. One is if if more poor people can live in middle and upper income neighborhoods, that's a big challenge. And the other is if more upper income people and middle income people move into what have traditionally been poorer neighborhoods. Unfortunately, what we've seen is a growth of income segregation in the United States and an increase in concentrated poverty. And if we don't do something to fix that, then we can only expect the problems of poverty and concentrated poverty to grow worse over time. It seems like our approach to this problem has largely been the way engineers, and I'm a civil engineer, the way engineers tend to approach pollution, which is the dilution issue. You know, dilution yeah. is the solution to pollution. Let's just spread stuff out. And in this case, let's just, you know, spread people out. And essentially, that will be the way that we'll solve this. I'm hearing from you, and I, I'm looking at the statistics saying spreading people out more seems to be a big part of the problem, especially if we're losing population and that's leading to further decline. Is that a fair conclusion or is that too much of a leap? Well, I think it's an interesting analogy. I, the, the difference that I would draw is that as people have become more spread out, essentially the wealthy have seceded from many cities and from many neighborhoods. And what we've done through through land use planning and zoning in many cases is essentially create high-income enclaves that well-off people can move to and enjoy a better level of services and not have to deal with the problems or the costs that are associated with poverty. And that's part of the reason why poverty has become more concentrated in, in some neighborhoods is because, because of that effect. The spreading out has, has tended to make this problem worse. 
I've written a lot about neighborhoods that are designed to decline. And particularly when we get last year, we're talking about Ferguson and some of the problems going on in Missouri. A lot of people were focusing on the social aspects and the racial aspects, which I, you know, wouldn't argue are not consequential. They're hugely consequential. But one of the things we pointed out here is just that structurally, a lot of these places that are in the second, third life cycle of their infrastructure, their roads, their streets, the buildings, the strip malls and the big box stores and all that, that's, you know, been there a couple of generations now. They're in a different place and it's actually a place where they need more investment, not less. To me, when I read your report and you talked about the growing number of census tracts, essentially the tripling of census tracts that were in these concentrated poverty states, yet the population had not tripled. It seemed to me like what you're suggesting is that there's a lot more of these places that are entering, in a sense, the terminal phase or or the, the real despair phase of our development pattern. I don't know if you have read any of that stuff that I've written or have any thoughts on that, but you seem to be describing a problem that is accelerating in most places. Is that kind of a fair way to describe your findings? Yeah, you know, and I have, I've read your research with great interest, Chuck, and I think there is a strong parallel here. And what we do see is a lot of these, there were these neighborhoods we described as fallen stars. And to summarize it and maybe caricature it a bit. You know, we're talking about places that were, you know, suburbs that were built in the 1950s, 1960s, let's say, that in 1970 were pretty solidly middle class. And what's happened over the last four decades is that housing has, as economists would say, filtered down uh, instead of it being middle class. Now it's lower income housing now. Uh, that would be typical of Ferguson, I think, of those, you know, sort of first tier older suburbs. And a couple of things happen then. You know, one is the incomes of, of the people in those neighborhoods are lower, relatively speaking, now than they were. Uh, and it's also the case that those households spend a bigger fraction of their income on housing, uh, which means that they have less money to spend on everything else. And I think that's one of the things, you know, that you see in the, you know, in the employment prospects and the, the income and then fiscal prospects of those communities is you see a deterioration. So what was sort of seemed viable maybe when it was built, as it ages, it goes through a set of transitions that that I think tend to undermine its economic and its fiscal viability. So there's a really important point there. That term filtered down, I know that's not your term, but could you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because I, I th- yeah, it's you know, economists talk about you know, basically in this country, we build new housing for higher income people. That's always been the case. The people who buy new houses are you know middle and upper income people. When that housing gets built, it serves the high end of the market. But then, as it ages, the value of of housing tends to decline. It depreciates some. We build new housing that's more valuable. It's either bigger, has nicer amenities, it's in a nicer neighborhood, and so on. But on average, uh, housing tends to decline in relative value by about 1% per year. So that means that over a period of years, the, the people who are living in that house that was built in 1950, you know, they might have been in the top 10 or 20% of the population in uh, 1950, and the people who are living in that same house today are in the, you know, bottom quarter of the population. And that's that, that process that happens gradually over time is something housing economists call filtering. 
you started out that explanation by saying in this country. I know I'm, I'm pushing you a little bit outside of your natural boundaries, but you know, is this an American phenomena or is this something that has just always been with us? You know, I haven't studied this as closely in other countries. You know, it's more common in other countries to have a larger social housing component. That is that the, the government builds more of the housing and regulates it more than is the case here. I know the U.S. relatively well. I, I wouldn't want to comment too much on whether this holds for other countries or not. It seems to me, though, that when we're talking about those neighborhoods that you've described as the up and out, the ones where they're rebounding, I, I don't know if you've geographically laid those out and really looked deeply at where they're at, but it seems to me like they would maybe break that rule, that in a sense, they're not going to be places where you have a huge amount of new housing. You probably have some, I'm sure you're talking about places where they're building the the luxury condos and those kind of things. But my guess is that it's probably neighborhoods that also have a decent amount of the old housing stock that's either been repurposed or brought up to a, a luxury kind of standard, so to speak. Have you been able to look at any of those aspects? Yeah, I'd say two things. First of all, we have have on our website at City Observatory, we have a, a mapping function. So we identified all these high poverty census tracts as well as the ones that became high poverty over the succeeding four decades. So, you know, for any of the 50 or so largest metropolitan areas in the U.S., you can go to our website and look to see which neighborhoods fall into which category. Most metropolitan areas have usually one of these rebounding neighborhoods, one or two uh, in most cases. So you could look at them. We haven't done that, you know, the kind of statistical analysis that would let me answer your question. You know, and I know, you know I'm based here in Portland and we, we have a number of these neighborhoods in Portland. I would say it's a combination of several things. One is less deterioration of the housing stock. I think fewer units are abandoned and demolished. I think more rehabilitation of the existing housing stock. And then there's new construction in these neighborhoods as well. You know, some of it is, you know, very high-end condominiums, but then some of it is, you know, multifamily apartment residential. So it's serving a mix of households and incomes. But uh, I think that's a really interesting question to see how this plays out in different different places. How would you hope that policymakers would respond to a report like this? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think a couple of things. First of all, it's important to recognize that the concentrated poverty really is a serious problem and that it's growing, but the reason it's growing has very little to do with gentrification. And if anything, gentrification is ameliorating that problem. The second thing is I think you need to sort of back up to to think about what the root causes of this are. And I, uh, the critical factor, it seems to me, is just the growing demand for urban living in the United States. In other reports we've done at City Observatory, we chronicled the, the increasing movement of well-educated young adults back into city centers. There is this large and growing demand for great urban space in the United States. And that's what's at root here is – you know, people with money are bidding up the price of housing in cities. And in effect, we have a shortage of cities in the United States. We need more good, urban, livable places. The key public policy message is to think about what is it we can do to build more great urban places for people to live. Because that ultimately is going to determine, you know, how much pr housing prices go up in cities. And that's one of the factors that influences this process of gentrification that people are concerned about. When I hear people talk about 
trying to solve gentrification or deal with gentrification. And they're focusing on the displacement aspect, the notion that, you know, more affluent people are going to move in. That's going to force less affluent people out. Some of the stuff they come up with in terms of here's how we deal with this are more zoning regulations to limit the amount of growth, rent controls, buying up property in cooperatives so that it can't be developed and, and transformed and changed. These have always felt a little bit counterproductive to me. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like maybe you're suggesting that some of those things might be counterproductive. The impulse often is to to stop it, to block it, to to keep things from changing in the hopes that that will make things better. And, and you know, as an economist, it just clearly makes things worse. The more you constrain supply, the more difficult you make it to build more housing, the more you drive up the price of housing for everybody and that particularly disadvantages the poor. So that's it's very, very clear that if you're concerned about gentrification, you ought to be doing everything you can to encourage the growth of the housing supply. I think what's kind of called for here is sort of a, a, a jujitsu. You don't try and block gentrification, but you try and take advantage of the energy and the flow of capital that it's creating into urban spaces. One of the recommendations that Lance Freeman, who's written extensively about this at Columbia, has made is, you know, maybe we should be using our tax increment financing to help build affordable housing. And that's actually one of the things that that Portland has done is it dedicates about 35 percent of its tax increment financing in urban renewal areas to build affordable housing. And in one of its new neighborhoods in the last 15 or so years, it's built about 2,300 units of affordable housing in a neighborhood that's, you know, full of luxury condominiums. So I think there are some policy tools that we can use to sort of tap the the investment and the capital that's created here to make sure that the kinds of neighborhoods that we build are uh, mixed income. We have a, a number of members in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and whenever I get them on the phone and, and have a chance to chat with them and interact with them, or when I've been out in Northern California, it's fascinating to me because they seem to grasp the huge problem that is the entire San Francisco Bay Area in terms of housing and how it is forced this massive horizontal expansion and some of the lowest budget kind of development that you can find, yet there's a huge... I'll say kind of moral pushback almost. And it's, it's tied in with prop 13 and it's tied in with a lot of the other regulations that they have that kind of stifles reinvestment in neighborhoods. How big of an anomaly is a place like San Francisco or is it just kind of a foreshadowing of maybe what's to come in other places? Well, San Francisco is sort of the sort of the maximum impact point of a lot of these forces. First of all, it's a great city. It's a beautiful city. You know, it's walkable. It's got a great transit system. It's got a terrific climate. It's, you know, one of the most wonderful urban spaces in the world. So it's, it's not surprising that a lot of people want to live there. And then on top of it, you've got this very flourishing economy, technological economy that's generating a lot of wealth. So it's sort of ground zero for this. And then it's got a a very strong progressive political community that sort of reflexively thinks maybe we should regulate things. And, And historically, San Francisco's zoning and land use planning regulations have been been pretty strict. And I think this is one of those places, and I think the folks at Spur in San Francisco have done a good job of this or, you know, saying, you know, hey, if if we want to have 
livability. If we want to continue to grow our economy, we've got to do something to expand the housing supply because there is just such an incredible demand for for living in San Francisco. And and we don't have enough San Francisco like places in the United States. When I read your report and when I look at this stuff and I, I hear you explain you know, what's going on, I see that we need to build more great places. But if we do that, if we fill that demand, part of what's going to happen is that the places that you've identified as being in decline are likely to lose even more population. In a good sense, those people will be moving, hopefully, to places that have a better diversity of income that's going to provide more opportunity, all the things that are the opposite of the concentrated poverty. But it seems like we're going to have to go through a transition of sorts where some of these real marginal places that maybe should never have been built the way they were built in the first place are going to really suffer dramatically. Is that a concern that is real? And if so, do you have any ideas how we try to deal with that? As you know, Chuck, a lot of the kind of exurban development that we and low, very low density development that we built has this sort of built in long term fiscal drag that if we try to maintain it or save it, you know, we end up wasting a lot of resources. So I, I think the first thing you have to do is, is sort of accept that a lot of that stuff just doesn't make long term economic sense. Uh, and in fact, you know, that's sort of the verdict of the market, because when we look at, you know, housing prices in metropolitan areas, we see them, you know, the further out you go, the bigger the decline has been and the slower the rebound has been uh, since the housing bust of about 2007, 2008. The market for those things is, is no longer viable. I think the big challenge is, and, and, and this is a good one to think about, is sort of as we rebuild cities, as we build great urban places, how do we build them? in a way that maintains their income diversity. And I think that's the way we should frame this as opposed to, you know, we're going to block progress and we're going to keep keep things from changing. We have to think about how we leverage change to get the kind of diverse communities that we want rather than just having another cycle of concentrated poverty. When we started building places after World War II on the outskirts of our cities and the whole horizontal expansion, as you described with the filtering down concept, I mean, we were building largely middle class, upper middle class homes. Now that we have this kind of inversion going on, it feels like we are on the verge of essentially doing the reverse. Instead of abandoning people in poverty in urban areas and putting the affluent on the edge, we're abandoning a lot of impoverished people on the edge of the cities and concentrating affluence back into other neighborhoods. Maybe we can do that in, in a mix, but we're still leaving a lot of people behind in places that – from an impoverished standpoint, are really, really despotic. I mean, you have very low services. To provide services is really, really expensive per capita, poor transportation systems and the like. I've called this the social problem of the next generation. Is that an exaggeration? I mean, is is this where your report is kind of pointing us that this not only concentration of poverty, but how it's becoming now spread out to more and more and more kind of accelerating geographies? You know, first of all, there's no question that, that concentrated poverty has spread out, but so far it's highly related to housing age. And so it's the older suburbs, the so-called first tier suburbs and the more outlying neighborhoods of central cities that have seen the, the declines in value. It's still the case that 
that poverty rates are higher in the center almost everywhere than they are in the periphery. Disparity has gotten smaller, but it's still the case that the center is on average, much poorer than the rest of the region. But that's starting to change. And I think that, the again, the challenge here is, as we go through that change, do we use that flow of investment capital to uh, make sure that those communities stay mixed income? Is there anything we haven't <laughs> chatted about here, Joe, that is central and important to this conversation? Just two other thoughts here as on this whole notion of gentrification. I've given, you know, just listened to a lot of stuff, read a lot of stuff about it. And I think... It strikes me that there, there are kinds of two sources of cognitive bias that people bring to thinking about neighborhoods and neighborhood change and gentrification. And the first one is, you know, we notice when stuff changes. So when a previously poor neighborhood has new housing construction and new business and different people on the street and more activity, and that happens in the space of months or a couple of years, we really notice that. And it's very evident. On the other hand, if a neighborhood goes through this filtering process that we talked about, where each time a house sells, the family that moves into it, you know, has incomes that are maybe 10% lower or 20% lower than the family that lived in it before. And that happens very gradually over a long period of time. That's imperceptible to human beings. Nobody remembers what the neighborhood looked like and the people who lived in it 40 years ago. But that process is much more pervasive. It's happening everywhere, actually. And as we showed, very impactful. It changes the way neighborhoods look very dramatically. It just happens so slowly that we as humans don't recognize it. And our attention is drawn, you know, uh, and this is probably a good survival behavior if you're living on the savanna. You notice something that changes your environment and you respond to it. So that's the first thing. And again, it happens in these media capitals. It happens in New York and Washington and Chicago. These are very prominent places and our attention is drawn to it. So we're attuned to the quick surge up in a place, yeah. but the long, slow decline, we're not as attuned to because it, it happens slower and over a longer period of time. We notice the, you know, the volcanoes, but we don't detect the soil erosion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, that's uh, and, a great analogy. And there aren't very many volcanoes, but, you know, soil erosion is happening on a massive scale. Right. So uh, just to use that as an analogy. The other thing is, I think, you know, as human beings, we're very good at crafting narratives. We pull together facts and create stories to explain the way the world works. And we see a couple of things. You know, we know that inequality is growing in the United States is as high now as it's been in the past 70 years. We know that poverty has been growing. And we look and we see, hey, there are some of these neighborhoods where some higher income and whiter people have moved in. And I think the story we create is that caused, you know, that movement of people caused people to be poor. It actually doesn't matter, you know, where those richer and whiter people live. It doesn't affect the overall level of poverty that much, if at all. And crafting a, a narrative that implies that the gentrification is causing concentrated poverty, it's kind of convenient to conflate those two things, but there's, there's really a lot more going on that again, we don't you know, isn't as evident and we can't craft a story as easily. So I think it's, it's tempting to, to blame poverty on the, this process of neighborhood change, but it turns out to be so small and the f forces driving the growth of poverty are so much more sweeping that that story just isn't 
isn't a good explanation of the way the world works. It feels like when we obsess on it, we're talking about a symptom as opposed to the, the greater problem. Yeah, and I, I do think there's this issue of just you know a growing demand for uh, urban living. We have to frame it that way if we're going to think about a solution that will actually work. And we should be focusing, and if we see success, it's going to be more people moving into a neighborhood, not less and, and not stagnating. We'll actually see successful neighborhoods have a net population increase. I think that is one of the things to think about is that more density in urban neighborhoods amplifies a lot of their positive benefits. You know, it promotes transit, it promotes walkability, it creates uh, more local buying power, which means that there are more businesses that can be supported locally that you can walk and bike and take transit to. It reduces the amount of money people have to spend on automobile transportation. So again, when you look at a place like San Francisco, that's the value package that people are willing to spend very large amounts of money to get access to. And so I think we have to think about how we create more opportunities like that. The report is called Lost in Place. You can get a copy at cityobservatory.org. I've been speaking with Joe Courtright. Joe, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Next time you uh, put something like this together, give us a call. I'd, I'd love to chat again. Yeah, we have another report will be coming out in about uh, two weeks. We're looking at the... Um, the growth of jobs in city centers around the country. Then let's put it on the calendar and we'll chat again. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Chuck. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Uh, legal marijuana working out for Colorado, apparently. Yeah, a new report says last year Colorado collected, get this, $44 million in marijuana taxes. Yeah. Unfortunately, they can't remember where they put it. <laughs> it's a lot of green paper. Yeah. <laughs>